Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Nerd and All Geek podcast. It's me, Scott Hunter, with my friend John. Hello, John. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good, good. Uh, how are you? I am great, thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, very nice to, to be yes, back again. John was on, oh, uh, nearly a couple of years ago now to talk about the pilot for Star Trek Picard. Yeah, oh my God. At, at yeah. the time, we were we were cautiously optimistic and never has optimism been more misplaced. <laughs> no, well, at the time, to be pretty bad. I think I think we didn't even know about pandemics and lockdown back then. So not only did we have the rest of Picard to watch, but we also then had a pandemic to look forward to. So <laughs> I don't know which was worse. The yeah, pandemic was exactly. worse. Well, the pandemic was worse. I don't. We'll, we'll see which one lasts longer. Whether <laughs> Corona dies out before Picard does, <laughs> it's yeah. been renewed for a new season. Oh my god! Yeah, no, yeah, renewed for a third season before the second one's even out. Yeah. Patrick Stewart's name carries some weight, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't... It's impossible to know what kind of numbers they're getting. This isn't a Star Trek Picard podcast, probably. Oh, no, it's not. It's, no, no. But, but um, on Picard, it's impossible to know what numbers they're getting because they won't release the data for their streaming service. Yeah, exactly. But I, I don't know if it's moving big numbers on there or it's just dogged determination. I I have heard that it brought in a lot of people onto the streaming platform. So, which makes sense. Picard's a popular character. Patrick Stewart's an amazing actor. Yeah, Patrick Stewart carries some weight. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah, carrying the whole franchise on his shoulders for the last twenty years, in fact, almost. Um, yeah. But today we're here to talk about Dune, a new movie, uh, which is an adaptation of a book, which we both uh, are big fans of. I think. Yes, very fair much to so. say. Uh, so we both uh, got out to see Dune. Uh, Simba's um, new movie directed. Who's the director? It is Denis Villeneuve. I'm probably said that wrong. Villeneuve. I think that's right. Villeneuve. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we're just going to talk about our thoughts because I I knew John was a fan of it, and I saw you'd make a Facebook post about seeing it. I did. And I I got out to see it on Friday. On Friday, oh, I I had it's the first time I've been in a cinema since the pandemic. And I got out to see Dune, and I also saw Halloween Kills afterwards. Oh, wow. And, uh, Halloween Kills was pretty bad. That's like but a Dune... quality whiplash there. <laughs> well, I've, the last, I, I'm going to talk about Halloween Kills on the actually next official episode. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we'll yeah, but it's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, Halloween Kills was rubbish, but Dune was, was pretty good. I, I enjoyed seeing Dune. So, yeah. Oh, where, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with your overall thoughts? What did you think of Dune 2021? Um, I thought it was blisteringly good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, so it's it's one of these films, like Denis Villeneuve, I'm going to keep saying his name until I get it right, um, has a habit with his films of... of the word I want to use is sensual, and I don't mean in like the sexy sense, although maybe also in the sexy sense, I don't know, but in the sense of like it, it really like embraces every single one of your senses. It's sort of, you can feel the volume of the music pumping through your body sort of thing. You can, you know, like it's just, visually it's just so amazing. Um, I sound like I'm just frothing mad about it, and I, I do really enjoy his, his style of filmmaking. It's, it's an experience as much as it's a story, and I think June really, really played into that. Um, yeah, I think it was a good adaptation as well of the, of the book, which is which is a whole other thing as well. Has been hard. So people might remember if you've seen the David Lynch film. I've not actually seen the David Lynch film, but there was a, a film version in the eighties, uh, which was kind. Of, it's kind of well known for being quite bad. It's got <laughs> it's got sting in it. It's got a bunch of um, 
it has its kind of fans and it has its memorable moments, but it's also known as not a very good adaptation of the books. Well, I think because there's bits of it where... So there's a bigger topic about like adapting Dune, which is is is, is a surprisingly large topic because there's also the sci-fi miniseries. Um, I think it was Sci-Fi Channel. Children which, of Dune. Um, well, that was actually the sequel. So they did do the original Dune, and then they did Children oh, of yeah. Dune. Children of Dune is one that had James McAvoy and Susan Sarandon in, and some of the bigger names. Um, and then the first one, Dune, was wasn't quite as high budget, and you could sort of tell with like the soundtrack and the effects and things. They definitely got better in the second miniseries. But that miniseries like was was influential enough in terms of sci-fi. Like it proved to them that they could do sort of high high end, high concept science fiction, and it led to them actually commissioning Battlestar Galactica. I think. Mm-hmm. I think I read that. And yeah, but yeah. In, in ter- it, it, it's what passed for high budget in like the early two thousands. Yeah, TV show. and oh my god, <laughs> some of the effects are worse than in Babylon Five, and I don't say that lightly. But in general, like you know, the the story itself is relatively well done. Um, what what I didn't realize until I was watching this movie is how much of my visual concept of a Dune universe was influenced by the Westwood computer games. Yeah, as well. Yeah, massive. There, there uh, was a series, um, Westwood Studios, known for Command and Conquer, did uh, several Dune kind of RTS games, uh, which featured these uh, these live-action cutscenes, well, I mean, which uh, yeah. absolutely, like, tiny, like, zero-budget <laughs> actors in front of a green screen wearing, like, a, a costume, like, a cheap costume. But to my, like, this that was the first interaction I had with a Dune Oof! <laughs> as a child, was um was seeing these computer these computer games and it absolutely captivated me. Well, I I haven't played them, but what I do know is I think I think again I think this is correct. They were like the first June game was the first modern RTS. Like yes, just June two for yeah by Westwood. Yeah, where you actually first modern RTS click units and then click to move them yeah. and build it. Like that was it became Command and Conquer afterwards. Um, but they essentially sort of they were the ones who they created with June the the yeah, the modern form yeah. of the RTS. Um, I think that's interesting because also like if you look at things like and you mentioned obviously the David Lynch one. We we've managed to transition from David Lynch Dune to the to computer games relatively quickly. Um, but like the David Lynch Dune sets a lot of like visual tone for lots of sci-fi movies as well. Yeah. Um, and like the soundtrack, which is a lovely soundtrack in, in places, absolutely beautiful. Um, and also sort of like the grand scale of it, because it was sort of about these like really I mean, Dune itself is a large scale story. And I think David Lynch's Dune, one of the things it did really well, um, was was capture like everything's huge in the Dune universe. Like you have you know the smallest ships are are still enormous. You know the the spice crawlers, um, you know the spice harvesters are enormous. You know so, so everything's just scaled up quite a bit compared to something like Star Wars, where um, yeah. although Star Wars has like the Star Destroyers and the Death Star, it's sort of, it's still a quite like a sort of like an adventurous sort of swashbuckly feel, and June like really felt epic. Um, and borderline unwatchable in places as well. <laughs> like well, that- yeah. Yeah, uh, let's have a little plot recap. If if anyone's listening who's uh, who's not read Dune or or who's kind of wondering about the plot, because that was one thing. I'll, I'll tell you my general thought oh, on yeah, the movie as well. Yeah. Actually, I didn't get. I thought a plus for visuals and soundtrack, like really great soundtrack, as you say. And in terms of like translating the world of the, the books to the big screen, I think they made some really great design decisions. Yeah. I think um, all the costuming was wonderful. Oh, yeah. The, the, the spaceships, like having the spaceships be like these massive cylinders 
uh, absolutely like, and they they really show you the scale of them as well. I thought was uh, yeah. amazing. It really looked like a properly alien type society um, that's like so different from our own. I thought, yeah, exactly. uh, that worked really well. Uh, I would say I think some of the, the decisions about what to leave in and what to cut from the books were a bit uh, strange to me. I feel like um, I, I would I I was left with the impression I would actually have liked them to depart more from the books. Yeah, because I think um, I think they fall into a trap sometimes of trying to be a bit too faithful, um, but then not faithful enough that it's going to please like the diehards. I think that's yeah. We'll, we'll do a plot summary in a bit, I suppose. But like, I oh, think yeah. I agree in that every adaptation of Dune I've seen so far, of the three of them. So because not long ago I watched the, the sci-fi miniseries, and then I've seen the David Lynch one several years ago now. Um, but they they always have this thing of being quite literal in their adaptation, and I think this film um, had those elements. So you still have the scene where um, Kynes is inspecting the you know, the still suits and going, oh, you've you've worn one of these before. And, oh, you've set it in the right fashion. He goes, oh yeah, well it seems right. It's like it's all verbatim from the book. Um, and I don't yeah. know if that's just because those scenes are so iconic that you've got to have them in. I don't know if that's sort of you know only the good scenes anyway. Like they're enjoyable to, to watch or, or to read regardless. Um, but I, I would be interested to find out whether someone who's not read Dune before doesn't have any familiarity with it. Just like watching this, do you still get like the full extent of a plot? Yeah, I think I'll be. Well, I'm taking my partner to see it, hopefully. Mm. Um, in okay, I'll be interested to see what she thinks of it. She hasn't actually, she started reading the book, I think. She got about a chapter in and then she's moved on to all the books. I have, I will say, since the, the film was. Here, this is my mark of endorsement for the film, which is since seeing it on Friday, I have. Re re listen to the first half of the audiobook. Yeah. <laughs> so it it did make me immediately want to go and just reread the book well, just, or re listen to it. Yeah, just re experience the universe. Because I think. Yeah. Well, actually, and this will be again part of the thing, the discussion that will probably come up. But like, I think one of the most amazing things with Dune is the universe and the world building that goes on and where like it's so detailed and so, so rich in places um, that it's, it is like it's kind of intoxicating. And I think that's that. I I don't think they quite manage that in the film. Um, I'm not sure if they manage that in any of the adaptations. Of the, I, I will mention that yeah in a bit because I think that was one of the moments the um, the moments of tension in the film. And I don't mean like plot tension. I mean like slightly on the fence about what it wants to be. Whether it wants to be kind of a political thriller or if it wants to be a more personal story. Yeah, exactly. About Paul Atreides. Uh, let's, yeah. I'll give. Let's have a little plot summary. Okay, go on. Dune uh, is set. Uh, about 10,000 years in the future, yep. in the far future, uh, such that everyone's forgot about Earth because humanity is, uh, you know, amongst the stars uh, and the sp- space is ruled in a kind of feudal system. So you've got an emperor, but then space is kind of divided up between these noble lords in this sort of feudal uh, feudal system. And there's a, a planet called Arrakis. Also known as Dune, the desert it's planet. A, a desert is a desert planet, land of sand, <laughs> sole home to the spice melange. There's a substance on Dune called the spice, or called melange, uh, and it's the only place in the universe where you can find it. And the spice has many properties. It extends your life. It grants you insight into the future. Uh, and because of that, it's the only. It's a substance which is used to make space travel safe. So the way they, they've got ships which are going like 
you know, faster than light speeds or whatever. How do you avoid, like, crashing into something? They use navigators who take the spice to see into the future and, um, like, chart a safe path through space. This is only hinted at in both the book and the movie, but, like, that's basically why it's so valuable, is it not only extends people's lives, but it makes interstellar travel possible. Yeah. So, so basically, it, whoever controls Dune, um, you know, there's enormous money to be made uh, by being the sort of uh, the, the the noble house that is tasked to run the planet. Well, whoever and controls then, the spice controls the universe. Oh, controls the universe. Yeah. yeah, controls the universe. Yeah. And whoever controls Dune controls the spice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, but the plot of the book revolves around uh, a boy called Paul. Paul, he's the the son of the, the Duke Atreides, Duke Leto Atreides, who's sort of a, a noble, he's a noble nobleman. He's like the head of a noble house and he's also quite like a, a he's a, generally a stand-up guy and he's um, he's getting politically quite powerful. The, the, yeah. kind of the background to the, the story uh, is that the Emperor's afraid that the Duke Atreides is going to grow too powerful. Uh, the Atreides have a mortal enemy house called the Harkonnens. They've been feuding for you know a long time. And basically the Emperor is conspiring with the Harkonnens to destroy the Atreides house by giving them fiefdom over Arrakis, but uh, um, taking over Arrakis from the Harkonnens, but then the Harkonnens and the, em- and the Imperial House are basically going to use that as an opportunity to wipe out the Atreides. Well, it's a trap, is, isn't is it? It's the setup. It's, it's a, a political trap. trap. They say, come and manage this really valuable planet, but then that gives the Harkonnens an excuse to strike back at the Atreides to seize what was once theirs, and the Emperor can help the Harkonnens get rid of his political rival. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Emperor kind of helps them in secret. Yeah. Um, but amongst all that, uh, you've got the Duke's son, who's called Paul, uh, Paul's mother is a woman called Jessica. Jessica is part of a order, uh, kind of a religious order called the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Uh, the Bene Gesserit is an organisation that's um, been conducting a millennia-long eugenics project. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. to um, to create a sort of perfect psychic human. The idea of the Bene Gesserit. Uh, also, to kind of understand this, uh, you've got to sort of think about the this idea of like a collective unconscious is like a real thing in the June universe. Uh, so the idea is the Bene Gesserit is an order of all women and through like a combination of eugenics and like intense mental training, uh, like Bene Gesserit women, like some of them called Reverend Mothers, get to like access their genetic memories of like yeah. every every woman who's lived, who's they're all their ancestors who are women. They get to access their genetic memories. Um, and they've kind of been involved in this project to create what they call a Kwisatch Haderach, who's meant to be, he's like a, a male Bene Gesserit and the idea is the Kwisatch Haderach will be able to look, to see both masculine and feminine memories. Yes. Try, try not to think too hard about the gender essentialism in this. It was the 60s. Yeah, I think the 60s <laughs> of it pervades throughout as well. There's other yeah, yeah, aspects there's a bit, which are, yeah. yeah. A few, but basically, they're trying to create this like psychic mega psychic man uh, who's going to be really good and kind of change the the universe. Uh, Jessica was not meant to have a boy, which Benny Jezra are able to control what gender of children they have. Yeah. She was not meant to have a boy. She was ordered to have um, a woman. So she's like the concubine to the Duke. So she's not the Duke's wife, but they are in love 
which is kind of a point, which is like a, an exceptional bit about their relationship. Well, there's a tension uh, between them, isn't there? Because yeah. he wants to marry her, but he has to keep himself politically available for... But yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly, to, to other houses. Yeah, so uh, she, because the Duke really wanted a son, out of love for her, you know, her partner, she may, was able to choose to give him a son. Uh, and uh, so, and Paul is a, a particularly gifted child. He's been trained in sort of the Bene Gesserit ways, and that he he might and maybe will become this like Quizarch Haderach. Yes. who's the yeah. meant to be the opener of a way. He's meant to sort of really change how things are run. And also the planet Arrakis uh, is home to a people called the Fremen, who are sort of desert dwellers who live in this incredibly harsh environment. They've got their own legends about uh, a Masonic figure, which may or may not have been planted there by the yeah. Bene Gesserit. But um, they also see Paul as uh, a potential sort of uh, what they call Muad'Dib, uh, this kind of potential a, messianic figure. Yeah, yeah, literally. And, messiah. I think. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that like everything we've discussed so far also is is essentially chapter one and maybe a bit yeah, of chapter two. Ch- <laughs> that, that's that's like the, and that's the prologue. Yeah, uh, to the book. Uh, yeah, that's a summary. That is literally like a, a, an introductory summary almost. And, yeah. and the book follows the Atreides fortunes on Dune and Paul sort of. Um, Misfortunes. Yeah. I guess we will get into to spoilers at some point um, <laughs> because um, and and the f- movie is basically an adaptation of the first act of the book. Yes, the first half of the, it. The, yeah. the first, yeah, the first part. Having just listened to the first half of the audiobook, it's basically the first, the first, for like, yeah, it's the first act plus like a little bit of act two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yes, so that that's it's and my point in kind of saying this is that Dune's a universe with a lot going on, and oh. in a in a book in the book many characters monologue for a long time about different aspects of the world, and I think also in the book you get the you get the characters' internal thoughts as well, and they you know they're in sort of quotes. I mean that's one of the things that made it into the David Lynch adaptation where like he literally yes. had if the character's saying you know, has thoughts in the book. They're just voiceovered in the film. Yeah, things so, like that. June June is written in what's called third person omniscient. So yes. there's there's no point of view character really. You do hear everyone's internal monologue. Yeah, and it will switch between within not quite the same paragraph, but within you know from paragraph to paragraph, you're having a different person's yeah. perspective. Uh, my my, my favourite um, example of that in the early book is there's the Atreides think there's a traitor amongst them and you go from the scene of them being like there may be a traitor to the traitor's monologue being like yep it's me I'm I'm, I'm a traitor I'm, I'm a traitor <laughs> oh man I do such traitorous stuff like oh no such a so, traitor yeah. so and June's a book where a lot of the characters are like precognizant a lot of the characters can see the future yeah. to greater or lesser extents. So you get um, a lot of the book is characters talking about the prophecies that they're foreseeing and, yeah. <laughs> and then doing them. Yeah. And incidentally, um, like, uh, you know, the sequel, Jude Messiah. Yes, I haven't read it, but uh, yes, I'm, yeah, I'm conscious. I, I think that is a truly unfilmable book because that is 
that, but more. It is every character is precognizant. Yeah. Every yeah. character is merely talking about their fate, which is unavoidable. Well, you have you have the children who were pre-born, I believe. I've seen it in the yes. in the adapt- the sci-fi channel adaptation, yeah. And he has this, this twin twin children who are, who are pre-born. Which children, means- children of June, the third one, was actually slightly better than that because they get rid of several precognizant characters. Oh. And that, there are actually some characters who don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. That must be so exciting. <laughs> like, I have a bit of uncertainty. Um, it is. I mean, so, there's... Oh, God. No, no, I was going to... No, you go ahead if you've got a... oh, more to say. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, yeah, there is so, so much going on. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, we haven't even gotten into is the Harkonnens are not just going to invade the planet. Like, they have plots within plots. They have plots against each other, the Harkonnens. Never mind against the Atreides. They have plots against the Emperor. The Emperor we don't even meet, I don't think, in the first oh, book until oh, the yeah. end. He has so, plots within plots. It's Yeah. So, the Baron Harkonnen is also, he's got an heir called Fade Routher. Yes. He doesn't make it into the movie. But he's also pitting, he was planning to have his One of his nephew. servants. Well, he was planning to have Piter the Mentat. Oh, and yes. by the way, another another element of a prologue is that there aren't any computers in the Dune universe because computers. There was a big war where they fought these thinking machines, so computers are outlawed. The and then they have human jihad, computers. Jihad, yes. Yeah. So they have human computers called Mentats who are like who are humans, but their mind has been conditioned so much that they are basically like better than a computer. And Paul is being trained as a Mentas as well. Yes, he, he is. All, yes. He was also unbeknownst to himself, and they don't actually bring this up in the movie, but in the no. book, the idea is he is being trained as a Mentact, uh, being trained in the Benny Gesserit ways. He's he's a super special boy. He, he's he, got a lot going for him. He's a special little kid. Yeah, he is. Uh, no, what well, I mean, he thinks he's a young man. Right? He's, a, he's a teenager. I think is he fifteen? Yeah, he's fifteen. Yeah, in the book. I think has he been aged up at all in the movie? They don't. They don't say he's fifteen, and he could be sort of eighteen. Yeah, I think kind of nineteen. Youth. He's definitely in the in the in the primacy of youth and the sort of you know slightly not rebelliousness, but the the questioning, you know, struggling to find his own identity type thing. Um, and obviously, his identity is is essentially the plot of the of the whole yeah, story. Yeah, well, really. well, let's talk about the main character. What did you think about? Paul Atreides in the movie and the portrayal, the portrayal of him there. The, the Paul trail. Um, it was, um, oh, it was excellent. Yeah, like, I mean Timothy Chalamet is. Uh, I've not seen him in loads, but he's he's good. Um, he, I mean, he had quite a lot to work with in this. I think mm. one of the issues with Paul in the book, uh, and I say an issue, it works within a book because we have insight into him, but he is quite a um, restrained character. He is yeah. not particularly well, wild or. Yeah. Um, uh, that's one of the things that they've uh, a positive change for the movie is that all all the characters are a bit more outwardly emotional, which yes. you you've got to have because in the book, again, they the characters who have like this Benny Gesserit training is also trains you to like hide your emotions and but yeah. and that works in the book because we can hear their internal monologue, but in the movie you do need your characters to show some emotion. Yeah, otherwise you may as well just have <laughs> literally cardboard cut out of the voiceovers. I mean, because yes. they like the Benny Gesserit don't move unless they want to. You know? No, they yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think they did well in terms of giving him more to work with emotionally, and I think he did really well um, in in playing like that range of sort of a restrained, quite thoughtful young young man, and then going to the bits where like he's overcome with his emotions and his new experiences. Yeah. He's having. I, he he he's struck me as a little bit angsty, I guess. Um, um, I mean, Paul, I, I got some. Yeah, you go ahead. Oh, no, so, uh, mid book, Paul is very angsty. Mm. Like he's very embroiled so. in his 
is destiny. There's a lot of tension. Like the tension in Paul's character arc is: is he going to fulfil his purpose, his terrible purpose, as he keeps yes. pushing it? Yeah. And and basically, he's destined for something that he's not sure if he wants. Yeah. Well, he's destined for something that he believes. Well, he know, he knows will be evil and cause suffering and things. The, um, I mean, I, I suppose yeah, for people who haven't half familiar, once Paul. Um, gets down onto the, the planet of Dune of Arrakis. He starts his exposure to the spice, awakens his precognizance more fully, and he starts seeing visions of himself leading these like murderous crusades across the galaxy where millions die by his hand or by the hands of his followers. Um, and he obviously starts resting with that. So every decision he's making is potentially putting him further along that path or taking him off this, but he can't quite tell. And there's even though you can see the future, it's sort of it's 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 in waves, and it's sort of it comes in like I think it's I think there's a good bit in the book where it describes it as it's like he's a boat on the ocean amidst amidst great waves. When he gets to the top of one wave, he can see over the others, but then there's bits where he goes back down again, and his his preconceptions is limited and doesn't really give him a full picture, um, which is all very like you know poetic and thematic. Um, and not quite. I mean, the, the, the film doesn't really dive straight into it particularly. Are you still there, Scott? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm still here. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like obviously, I think the film just starts showing you hints of that, um, which you know. Yeah, but I think I think it works fine. It's so it's very it's very emotional what it shows you. Sort of, it, it doesn't give you any specifics in his visions. Just that there's violence ahead. You know. Yeah, I think like it visually represented very well. Like his visions, it's very like um, just very visually impactful. Like it's yeah. like a you know, it's a kaleidoscope of scenes basically. Yeah, with that kind of soundtrack. I think I I know you made a you made the point on your Facebook where you were saying this this soundtrack uses like volume as a yeah. as an effect in itself, and it really is good, oh. especially in those sort of vision scenes. Uh, just like looking at how overwhelming it is to be in that position. Yeah, well, I think the the vision scenes, the battle scenes, where you it, like, the, the, I mean, the battle. There are you know there are fight scenes in this action scenes, but really, I mean, there's there's a bit where you can't really even see very clearly what's going on. It's almost like it's motion, not motion blurred. It's like it's out of focus, but you just get the impression of the violence that's going on, and it's more about like that, like immersing you in that event and like make giving you that impression of this is chaos and this is overwhelming and sort of you know it is deafening i mean we, we saw it in the imax it was deafening you know mm. um but then also i mean one of the elements of the uh, Bene Gesserit training is the voice which is where they can train their voice to hit the exact pitch and tone um to compel anyone to do exactly what they're telling them and it's very difficult that, that's something that's very difficult to put in an adaptation because it's kind of a goofy concept. <laughs> like it works in a book, but it's very difficult to make work in a, like a visual or and like a, a an acoustic medium um, in a way that isn't going to be slightly ridiculous. And in this film, like oh god, the way they do it the first time that Paul does it, and it's just mm-hmm. you hear this like this mumble, like this bassy mumble, just like and then you hear his words. Um, it works really well. Yeah, I, I think I really liked um, the chemistry paul had with both his father and his mother like i think yeah uh, later trade is played by poe dameron himself oscar, oscar isaac Isaacs. Yeah. yeah uh yeah played really well by uh you, you wouldn't have thought that guy was um 
was Poe Dameron. He, he grew a beard and he looks like 10 years older. Yeah, well, it's the Riker really? effect. <laughs> He's just, he'll be commanding the Enterprise next. No, uh, yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, Oscar Isaac, I don't think I've ever seen him give a bad performance. Mm. I think the first thing I saw him in was um, Drive, where he's playing like a proper scumbag. Uh, and I hadn't seen him in anything else. And I was like, oh, he just seems like, I, I, I would have assumed he was the kind of person who would be typecast as that based on his performance in Drive because he does it so well. But then you see him later on, you're like, oh my God, this guy's like really good. He's got such a range on him. Um, and like, yeah, like like Duke Leto is a very different character to Poe Dameron, is a very different character to um, uh, to his standard, he was called, in Drive. To anyone he's played before. Anyone really. he's played before, yeah. And again, it's that bit more reserved and quite, and very statesman-like, obviously, you know, by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very fatalistic character isn't he yes because he 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 basically knows he is walking into a trap but he can't really do anything about it because like honor demands that he accept the emperor's appointment yeah exactly uh, uh, to to control iraqis and then he can't really that's all he can do he just has to kind of sit around and wait for it well, I think that's one of the things. Or he, or he tries his best like but yeah yeah well i was gonna say i think that's one of the things that they did well so there's 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 a couple of things so in the book, you you hear a lot more and you learn a lot more about what the Atreides are doing to to fight the trap that they're in that they know that they're knowingly going into, and so they sort of discuss how you know they're going to they're doing these things they're trying to set up stuff themselves they're going to get the Fremen on side because that will help them fight the Emperor's elite troops and things like that, um, and so you get more of that in the book than you do in this film. But one thing that this film did do, which I feel was missing a little bit from the book is they had a bit more emotional interaction between Paul and Leto, between Paul and his father. So they have the bit where there's a scene added in, which isn't in the book, which is where they go to the grave of Leto's father, of Paul's grandfather. Uh, It's like in like a a, sort of like an open graveyard on Caladan, their homeworld. And it's just a nice little scene where they just sort of discuss Paul's place and, you know, sort of, It doesn't get really emotional, but it just gives you a bit more insight into that relationship, which I think was really needed in a in a film, you know. Which, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. And you get a little bit um, where the Duke is like, I, I, I wanted to be a pilot when I was your age. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, Paul, Paul's a bit more impetuous in the film version. Like he's a bit, uh, he's quite cautious in the books. Yes, um, and he's he's made a bit more like he wants to. Um, get out on his own a bit more he wants to go on like a scouting mission uh, yeah to a point where i'm thinking like it's slightly silly like would, you know he would this like precocious duke son uh wanted it but then he's he's kind of is a part of his character he wants to sort of um yeah he's a bit more impulsive he's yeah. a bit more a bit more un, uncooked we're going to see him develop a little bit more i think and and i think um because that was a similar change i mean it's a similar-ish um in the sci-fi channel adaptation um, Paul in that played by um, oh Guinness, what's his name? Something Guinness, I can't remember now. But anyway, he um, in that he's much more rebellious at the beginning, and then sort of grows into like a more sort of mature person, um, as opposed to in the book where yeah he starts off quite sort of mature as I said and restrained, and then and then moves on. Um, I think in this, I think it was the right balance. I think it was the right tone. It's it's believable that he is a, a young man who has been raised within a very aristocratic setting. And you get the impression of him being, you know, still quite poised and quite disciplined. Uh, but yeah, with that, you know, that more sort of like, as you said, wanted to break out on his own and forge his own destiny type thing. That's still present and that's believable for someone his age as well. I think they hit the, I think the tone was about right, I think, in this film. Um, for yeah, I, I did. 
Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I did connect with the character again. I think actually, uh, going back and reading the book uh, after seeing the film, I, I think they took more from the book than, than I thought for that character. I think in the cinema, I was thinking this is it didn't feel quite right. It it didn't feel true to my memory of what the character Paul Atreides is like. But then, actually reading the book, I think they got got it a bit more right than I thought. Yeah, actually seeing it. Yeah, I think I think the the biggest difference is for me when they're in the still tent uh, later on in the film. So mm-hmm. there's a portion once um, the Harkonnens spring their trap and attack um, Arrakis and the treaties on Arrakis. Um, Paul and Jessica escape through one, you know, various means, and they're in a tent buried in the sand. And Paul is having these visions, and he's sort of coming to grips with the fact his father's dead. A lot of the people he grew up with are now dead, um, and in that, I think he's. Um, He's quite cold, and he becomes quite cold with Jessica, and she feels like you know he's he's growing very emotionally distant from her, and he's sort of you know he's he's being very uh, just very sort of blank with her sort of thing. In the film, in the adaptation, he's much more angry, angry and anguished, um, which again I think is just a, a necessity for doing like a for doing a film yeah. where you've got actors and, and involved. To be fair, yeah, that also that scene like in the audiobook. It takes that's like a thirty-five minute scene. Yeah, in the tent and in the but in the film they got to condense it to sort of a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. They they kind of need to make it a bit bigger, a bit bolder. Well, I think I think that was in general they did that quite well in the film. So you've got, um, I mean, you mentioned that Bar- uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen has his air fade rather, and he's intending to to have. Someone he's had to have one of his aides, Peace de Vries, take over Arrakis and then you know terrorize the population so that he can introduce Fade Rowther as a liberator and then Fade will be loved and then everything else. And Fade Rowther doesn't appear in the film. I mean, he may not even exist in the film's universe, as far as I can yeah. tell. Uh, uh, no, instead, there is simply one Harkonnen heir apparent who is the Beast Raban. The Beast Raban, uh, who, yes. who does come back. Yeah, I'm t- and to be fair, that's a character Fade Rowther got cut. Like, I've in fairness, Fade Ralpha only exists to get killed by Paul at the end of the book. Well, that is it. I think I think that's a really interesting, you know, adapt- like what adaptational style because you've got I think yeah, like exactly F- from Paul's perspective, uh, from like the main from the perspective of the main narrative that what June is actually about, which really it's about Paul's journey. You know, um, Fade Ralpha doesn't really do any like literally Fade Ralpha turns and says, "I'm Fade Ralpha. You killed my uncle, and I'm prepared to die." And Paul's like, "Okay." I just met you. Don't know who you are. <laughs> it's just because like, he just has no clue. Uh, and so I think it. Whilst I like a lot of stuff that goes on with Fade Rather, like the bit I've just read because I'm rereading the book now, is where Fade's been doing his um, gladiatorial match, hmm. and he's got plots within plots, and you know he's he sets up the match to make himself look like a hero and surprise his uncle and all this kind of thing. And just the more plotting against each other, and it's all sort of weird knowing that like ultimately the whole narrative like impact of this so that he turns up at the end challenges Paul and gets killed <laughs> it's like okay uh, and I think so I think it makes sense from a if you're breaking the narrative like the, the plot down into its broadest scope Fade Rather is a stri- is a weird diversion and one that you probably don't need and it's certainly not central to the to the conflicts gone, that are ongoing you know yeah, yeah. I, 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 we can get to the Harkonnen in a second oh yeah um, but um one thing I wanted to say, I think one relationship that did suffer in that kind of core Atreides family relationship is I didn't get much of a sense of Leto and um, Jessica. Like I thought, I thought that was the relationship that really suffered in the adaptation. 
Yeah, I think they definitely had more scenes together in the book. Um, and obviously, again, you have more thoughts about them. They, they sort of express each other's thoughts more um, about one another. Um, in in the film, you have you have at least one scene where I think it's Leto's bedroom, and you sort of see that she does emotionally nurture him. He does rely on her for sort of mm. a degree of grounding and you know sort of like emotional emotional resilience. I think, um, yeah, but it is yeah, as you said, just I would like kind of one additional scene because that, that scene in the bedroom is like directly before the betrayal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because, yeah. because in and they drop they actually drop this entire plot thread. Uh, so. They keep in in both books and film. There's a, an attempt on Paul's life with a, a little drone. There's like a hunter seeker drone. Yes, uh, it's like a tiny thing that flies. And there's a, it's a very tense scene. Quite a famous scene in the book where Paul is sort of he's only got his wits. You know, he's in his bedroom and he's only got his wits to try and outsmart this machine. Yes, uh, which is being piloted by like a Harkonnen agent. Yeah, uh, but and that that scene stays in the film. But the scene. Uh, kind of precipitates a little plot line um, where they they conclude rightly that there is a traitor in the Atreides household, uh, and the Duke um, it, the Duke has a mentat called Fufir, who was like a master of assassins, and Fufir casts suspicion on Jessica, and the Duke kind of refuses to believe it, but for reasons of trying to fool the Harkonnens, he. Uh, decides to feign suspecting Jessica, yes. and that involves being a bit like cold to her. Yeah, and that, that that that's kind of like the Duke's like his sort of um his sort of fatal sin, really. Uh, like I sit in the book is like, oh, it's it's like an extra moment of tragedy, wherein like in yeah. the final days of his life, he was kind of he was cold to this woman who he loves uh, to try. In, for the person who are trying to escape from this trap, which he could never escape from, in, like he was already caught in it. Yeah. They, they, they never really get to have a scene um, a scene where they make up. And in fact, um, I guess we're just going, we are going full spoilers now uh, for the book. Yeah. Uh, but it is, um, he is actually on his way to sort of make up with Jessica when the Duke is like incapacitated by, by UA, who's a traitor. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, that, that, and that's kind of like an extra bit of tragedy. So, they, they keep Hunter drone like bit in, but the little plot that it precipitates gets cut. And I kind of think, why, ha- why even have that scene in there then? Yeah, I would think, and again, it's one of the things where it's like it's a very iconic scene. It's, yeah, book. exactly. So but, it's like it's something you can't really cut. Yeah, but... I think I think the thing as well with Lito is like with Lito and Jessica. Obviously, Lito dies. Like, yeah. I mean, like in the film, he dies in the, almost the, the next scene on. Um, in the book, he he dies with it by you know sort of the first third of the book, and. So again, from like the adaptational perspective, it probably does make sense to focus on that relationship, given that one of them will be dead before the film's halfway done. Um, so I sort of get that. But yes, it is a shame because, as you said, yeah, the tragedy of this is so lovely. I mean, that's the thing where... Uh, oh, go on. So I would also like to have liked it pointed out because in the in both in both book and film, um, the Jessica, you know, she talks to the Reverend Mother, who was like her teacher in yes. her school days. And, and the, the mother says, you know, in... Well, the Reverend Mother, not her actual mother. The Reverend Mother says, oh, "In your pride, you thought you could produce the Quizach Hadarak. That's why you had a boy, and that's what the Reverend Mother thinks." But we we know from Jessica that she actually had a boy because she loved the Duke so much. Yes, uh, and he, exactly. wa- he wanted a son, yeah. and that that is actually not not brought up in the movie. And I think that could have been like a, a really good detail to bring up. Just uh, I I would like to reinforce a bit more. 
uh, that yes, Leto and Jessica do love each other, and that is kind of an exceptional thing for people in their situation. And yeah. just, just add that little extra bit of tragedy in there because I think we we don't get many scenes with them together, and I would have liked to have that relationship a bit more solid before Leto dies. No, I, th- I think I agree. Yeah, I, I think as a, I mean, I think is that's that runs throughout the film for me. Like, there's loads of stuff in there where, like, it was cut for good reason in terms of getting that runtime down to something manageable, you know, presenting like a story that audiences can follow without having, you know, because in the book you can obviously you can take time to digest things, you can sort of absorb it at your own pace. And in the film there's, you know, an awful lot of things to, to absorb. But yeah, there's loads of things like the relationship between Jessica and Leto, sort of uh, some of the focus on like, you know, the Fremen culture and their relationship with water and things like that, that, that lost focus in the film and I wish had been there. Um, and things like to do with the Mentats, I mean, the Mentats... Thufia Hawass appears in the film, but he could well be absent without affecting the story too much. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something controversial. Oh? But if you're filming Dune, can Gurney Halleck, Duncan Idaho and Fufi Harrett could be condensed into one character. Yeah. I like, mean, really easily. I, I think um, I think that's essentially true. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, cause they all essentially have the same role, they have the same allegiances, yeah. and they have... I mean, they, they don't... They're all fantastically loyal, fantastically but, but, competent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the Duke has three lieutenants who are all really good. Yeah. yeah. One, one of them sings a bit, one of them is better at spying, and one of them is, like, better at survival. But really, yeah, they, exactly. they could all be one man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I don't know if they're going to... If Fufir is going to... They're going to emphasize his role in the the next movie. Um, I'm assuming they make another movie because they you know they stopped halfway through the book because Fufa he gets forced to be Mentat for the Baron, right? Yes, but exactly. he doesn't he doesn't do that much in the book from here on, uh, no. that I recall. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to come up. But yeah, but you could probably have put them all into one character. Well, anyway, this is it, and I think. Well, but then, no. oh, go on. No, I was I was gonna ask you to speak <laughs> <laughs> no i think yeah that's it i think there's loads of stuff i mean stuff to do with like the mentats and things is really interesting and cool they don't actually go into what mentats are in the movie no but then again it's like how how well like peter de Vries is a mentat and in yeah. the book he's like this you know horrible assassin he's manipulative and things but also in the book you know he it's like baron the uh, baron harkonnen has these plans for peter and then Peter just gets killed anyway, and and like it doesn't really manifest. So they, they have a little visual touch, like they have. Who are these weird dudes with like the weird lips? Yes, uh, that, yeah, the little line you know, on the lips. They're, yeah. they're another, they're another weirdo who's in the weird Dune universe, which I appreciate. Yeah, exactly, which is is nice, but it is it's a tip of the hat. It's lip service. Uh, I, I do, I do think Duncan Literally. and Gurney could be. Yeah, lip service. I do think Duncan and Gurney could very easily be one character in a film adaptation fans may hate me for saying it but no i think well again like in in the book it works really well because they they whilst they are similar they do have slightly different perspectives on things you know sort of and they they each offer something different to paul so now paul, in in june messiah they can't be the same character <laughs> yes no, precisely yeah, for, for, <laughs> that is well, true yeah um, oh yeah that's another reason why june messiah is unfilmable because the the, the plot involves a clone of a dead lieutenant marrying a child. Yeah. But, but, but she's got the mind of a thousand women. So... Yeah. It's all a bit weird. Uh, Put that one into your... Uh, you know, try and work out the politics of that one. Go, go and have fun with that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, this is it. Like, I think so... 
Oh yeah, God. I mean, I, I'm a sci- I've seen as I said, I've seen the sci-fi adaptation, and I think I fell asleep at one point. It's, just um, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of talking in June Messiah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it would be interesting to. I, I don't. Know, I think I think it's fine having Duncan and um, Gurney and stuff as separate. Like they have their own roles. Having them together would also work fine. But yeah, I think Thufia Hawass definitely got the the short end of the stick in this adaptation, where he sort of he has a little fancy umbrella for one point, and then after that, he's just just not in the film anymore. And again, that's like I mean, one of my favorite scenes from the book is um, the first real interaction you have with Fremen besides Stilgar, and it's after the attack on Arakeen. And Thufia Howard's hiding out with some um, Atreides soldiers, and the Fremen turn up, and like, and Thufia's like, "Oh hey, yeah, yeah, we were attacked by Sardaukar, these elite troops who are completely unbeatable, and every single house within the within the Landsrad Committee is terrified of the Emperor." Yeah, the, and the idea of a Sardaukar is that the the Emperor alone. Through his elite Sadakar troops, like matches every other great house militarily. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, militarily. Yeah, and the Fremen go, "Oh, they were Sadakar. We were killing last night. Oh, yeah, they were a good scrap. Yeah, we we took three of them prisoner." And like he was like, "You took them prisoner? The sad we what? <laughs> like like this is like like this concept of the Fremen just sees them as a bit of a challenge, whereas everyone else is terrified of them. It sets yeah. the Fremen up so well, and like their very pragmatic attitudes to everything, um, and like." Again, it's a shame that scene didn't make it into this film. Whether or not that would be in the next film, because it would, it would probably work just as well in the next film because the timelines involved. You know, it's a day or two later. Um, but like, there's things like that that I miss a little bit, where you sort of, yeah, where you sort of build up like the mystique around the Fremen and under the sort of the terrifying mysteriousness of them. <laughs> well, they just they just don't bother with things. They're just they're just that hard. You know, they just sort of, yeah yeah. Um, um, uh, also, speaking of cut content, everyone's favourite character, Susu Suk, got cut. Uh, rea- what's your reaction to the cutting of Susu Suk? Hang on. I might be thinking, who's Susu Suk? Uh, he is. Uh, maybe I just know this because I play the Dune board game a lot more, and he is like a, a playing piece and that. He's uh, the guy at the dinner party. He's the water merchant. Oh, who's God. Got, like, who, who exists solely so other characters can be like, he's got a stupid nickname. forgot <laughs> <laughs> about him. Um, I mean, I love the dinner party, and that whole scene was cussed, which is tragic. And I, I understand why, why it was cussed, because it's half an hour of people sat around a table just being strategically mean to one another. It, um, basically, it's, it kind of fleshes out a lot of the world. But it does. It doesn't, it doesn't directly relate to the plot that much. No. It's a, a, apart from the smugglers, who are also kind of cut out of the film. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's a lot of fun, and yeah, it does. It serves a purpose in the world building. But I think, I mean, I think that's the thing that you can say of of the book of of June itself is, you know, the narrative is is, is pretty basic in terms of. When I say the narrative. What I mean is like the plot, the A to B to C ness of it. Of you know, Paul goes here, Paul uh, goes there. But, but the plot there. is Paul foresees a prophecy and then he fulfills it. So. Yeah, effectively, yeah, yeah. Like he, they get attacked, they go, you know, whatever else. Um, and I think the 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 wonder of June as a book is the storytelling. You know, sorry, is the the world building. You know, is the way that story's told and the universe it builds up around itself is the thing that's really captivating and compelling. Um, and again, those are things that are just harder to do in a visual film medium. You know, they're just they're just not as straightforward to do. Um, and so yeah, you you have those scenes as you said, like you know the. The dinner party is more about building up the world and the factionalism and the relations that all these different groups have with one another. Um, but just just isn't necessary for, you know, for a two and a half hour story 
which which focuses more heavily on Paul and his personal journey, you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, also, I wanted to mention um, some visual treats. Uh, how good did the Baron Harkonnen look? And like oh, how menacing? Oh, he was great. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, Stefan Skarsgård or Skarsgård or however you pronounce it. Um, I, I would say Skarsgård in my Scouse tradition um, was excellent. I mean, he's always great. He doesn't get that much to do in the film, I don't think. No, he doesn't have that much to do in the book, though. It's just no, no. Um, him sitting around and saying, is it not a magnificent thing that I, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, now do? <laughs> yeah, he's like, aren't I Grace? I'm, I'm just so Grace. Yeah. I'm Grace, yeah. Um, I mean, he now, basically... now, the Baron... Uh, you go ahead. Oh, no, I was saying, he, he could basically just be Bender singing the Bender song <laughs> um, at well, any point. <laughs> But the Baron is maybe a bit of a problematic character by modern standards. Uh, he he's he's a big fat paedophile who is um is so evil because he's he's so big and fat basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, with the Baron for the, for that specific reason, not the others, not the others. Um, I think I think the like. They, they they cut out his like sexual uh, deviance. Oh God! The, yeah, he's like um. I mean, he is explicitly a paedophile in the books. Yeah. Okay. A, okay. A, I'm gonna say I'm gonna retract my last statement. And say I don't. I don't no, no. I identify yeah. with the gluttony of it, not the. Not yeah. The, um. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of these things where you know, like when Tolkien was writing about orcs and using language and descriptions that just you just wouldn't use nowadays, you know, and using sort of cultural stereotypes. And it, it's not okay, and it wasn't okay then, but you sort of acknowledge that Tolkien was writing at a specific point in history where people didn't think as critically about those things as we do now. And I think the same goes for Dune, which is, you know, it's... I mean, the thing is, I'm going to be very... I'm going to be um, uh, what's, what blasphemous here and say Dune is a fairly goofy story. Like, it's there's a lot of stuff in there which which works because you sort of you fall in love with the universe... But in isolation is kind of goofy. I, I you know. mean, if you try and explain it to someone like who doesn't know it, and we tried to do it here, you've named like seven different weird-sounding organizations. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. and you got to talk about like planets and uh, and all this stuff. And it, I mean, it is it's a very nerdy thing. We haven't. I think it's worth bearing in mind. I don't think we, either one of us has said the phrase sandworm. Yes. In the oh, yeah, 49 also, minutes we've been speaking. Like, also, on Arrakis, there are these massive worms which go about in the sand and swallow, yeah. like, factories whole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We haven't even mentioned that. How do you go through a Dune <laughs> review for 50 minutes and not mention the sandworms? Um, and so, yeah, I think you've got that, that element of, like, Dune was written at a time where people didn't think the same way that we do now about certain social issues and things like that. So having, I mean, I think you said the, the Baron is, is, is seen as, as paedophilic. And I, I always got the impression it was more about like young men rather than young boys. Yeah. But yeah, I could yeah. be wrong he, in that. He, uh, he is explicitly a gay paedophile. Which, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, and, and it's, it's not clear the extent to which Frank Herbert differentiated between these two concepts. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the element of like, you know, it's, Yes, it's it's not great to have the most explicitly evil character in your narrative be also explicitly gay when there's no other the gay only, characters. The only gay character. The only gay yeah, exactly. Like like that's not great. Baron Harkon has not positive representation. There's not positive representation. <laughs> um but then I think it's like, you know, queer coding of villains was something yeah. that Disney was it's doing not, up until the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean but, even just ten years ago there was still stuff being released mm-hmm. where, you know, villains were seen as being well, I mean, God, the, the Sherlock with uh, Moriarty, you know, sort of... Oh, yeah. Like, it's a bit like... Um, 
it's a thing that still happens, which is a shame. Um, but now, now I'm picturing like a Dune adaptation aimed at like the Super Hulot crowd, in which like the the, the the Baron's gay relationship with someone is like teased as like a uh, a bit of positive representation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. in in a Sherlock fashion. Oh God. Oh, uh, uh, but. But yeah. anyway, but, but I, what I wanted to say about the way he looks on screen. So the idea is the Baron is like gluttonous, right? And he is, to, is taken to an extreme, as the Harkonnens do, to the extent that he is, his flesh is kind of outfitted with these like um, hover globes, basically. Suspensors. Suspensor uh, Suspensors. Yeah. And in the book, that just basically lets him walk around like a normal person. But in the movie, they do, like, it's absolutely amazing what they do with it because he's basically like flying or not like. I guess that makes floating. it sound a bit goofy, but floating. he's like floating and he's wearing like this big, long, long cloak. So like he will, you know, and he'll Towers like over, float. Yeah. yeah, he will like tower over and like he looks like, a, you know, he looks like a weird um, worm, basically, like a, an alien. Like, like a slug. Yeah. Yeah, like well, a slug. Yeah. The flying is an aspect that was in the David Lynch version and was always weird to me when I saw that because like... He walks around in the books. Why is he flying everywhere? But then they repeated it in the sci. I mean, the sci-fi adaptation is more loyal to the book than the David Lynch version. He still flies around in that. And then I was surprised when they made that choice for this one as well, because again, it's it's always just a little bit goofy. But I think they, I think they did it the most stylistically. Uh, well, with the soundtrack as well, it really I think it underscores like his. It makes him look so intimidating, and I think yes. like for Baron Harkonnen, it's slightly difficult to make physically intimidating, but they really do it. Yeah, I think yeah he 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 sort of has an ethereal evil about him. I think mm. in this, he sort of he he he's a bit more of a spectre or a ghoul. Um, he isn't just grotesquely fascinated and, and you know disgusting. He's he, he seems a bit more primordial, I think I'd say. In yeah. this. Especially in that scene where he's in the healing bath in this film, you know, when um, Beast Raban is speaking to him and, like, he just emerges from this oily pit of yeah, goo well, sort of thing. Yeah, so well done. And yeah. he, just, he just looks like a, a weird, like, leviathan emerging from the deep. Mm. Like, it's, it's I, just I do so really want to see what this director can do with portraying because presumably that's, like, the Tleilax that he's being... The Thalax in the Dune universe are basically like the flesh workers. They do a lot yes. of like genetic experiments. And presumably they're the ones... Because um, Duke Leto nearly kills the Baron in, in, uh, from Hell's Heart. He stabs at him sort of way. <laughs> yes. uh, and so he, the Baron has to regenerate in a big oily bath of goo. And I, I, I would really like to see more of like what the director could do with like portraying like the cloning vats of the Thalax and, uh, yeah. and all that well i think the visual style was was so striking in this and like a lot of it was very oh god yeah. those guild liners like these massive cylinders just, just tubes space yeah. yeah well what i liked with them as well is you sort of had the impression that they didn't actually because in um, previous you know adaptations and versions and things the the high the highliners themselves um travel through space not under proportion but they sort of they they vanish and reappear elsewhere mm. whereas here in this film, they seem to be forming a portal. So, like the Highliner, you sort of fly through them, and it's like you're flying through a portal, and the Highliner itself doesn't actually like reappear or anything. It's just static, which is kind of eerie as well and very mysterious. Mm. It's sort of hinted at, but I think in the board game, there's a visual where you sort of you can just see through the Highliner, and you can see a different planet beyond it. And you're like, oh, that's quite cool. Um, so yeah, I think that was visually beautiful. Um, but the yeah, I think I think seeing it'd be lovely to see some you know to see more of the universe 
under this this particular stylization would be would be great. Yeah. Mm. But the Sadakar looked great as well. Oh, and the way they floated down, like the suspenses yeah. is like almost like paratrooping, but 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 slower and more more graceful sort of thing. And silence, just creepy and, and so threatening, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I am um, yeah, I think uh that that's really good. They they look like elite soldiers, like they looked very intimidating. And seeing them scrap with the Fremen as well was um Yeah. They 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 looked and felt the part. They did, yeah. Well, I think all the costumes. I mean, the spacing guild with their slightly Daft Punk esque, um, like visors and helmets and things. Ah, uh, but you wanted to see them like look weird. You look, you want to see weird looking people, like well, you, weird costumes. You almost could. I mean, it was very subtle, but on the um, on the space guilders, you could just sort of see like the hint of a face through the visor, mm-hmm. and it didn't quite look right. Like it didn't didn't quite look like a normal face. It was something slightly off about it. Um, and like the, the visor itself is sort of like gold coloured, like amber, but you sort of get the impression that it's actually clear and that, that spice dust, you know, that spice vapour inside of it maybe. Um, but yeah, just everything about, like everything in this had that, like the element of being like a little bit, you know, sort of gritty, sort of, you know, quite realistic, but very ceremonial. Um, you know, the, like all the costumes and stuff had this this very formal element to them where they seemed you know to some extent practical but to some extent you're very very like yeah very yeah. very ceremonial very sort and of it's meant to be like a feudal aristocracy right uh, yeah precisely sense. yeah no so that was i mean yeah. just visually and uh, there were so many strong choices um, that i think worked really well how do you think they uh, did with the fremen so <laughs> I have some misgivings on the Fremen as portrayed. I think I think they're broadly portrayed faithfully to the book, but in the book you have more of Jessica's observations and Paul's observations of how the Fremen operate, which really hammers home like the the value of water within that society, um, like the 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 intensely practical but also quite romantic nature of the Fremen. So although they, I mean, one of the one of the, the plot points about the Fremen is they want to terraform Arrakis. They believe it can be a paradise. Um, and they want to, you know, so they are trying to collect as much water as possible so they can release this and create this lovely lush green paradise. And it's, it's quite clear in the books that like the technology to terraform Arrakis does exist. Yeah. But they, they, the, the, the Imperial, the Imperium won't do it because the spice is too valuable. Yes, exactly. And the dry desert nature of Arrakis is pivotal in the production of the spice, it turns out, as well. Um, for reasons that are to do with alien biology, which <laughs> which we can get into if you wish. But the um yeah, I think so I think the Fremen have that like that that lovely hopeless romanticism around them and also this fierce pra- pragmatism and and independence. And I, I think Stilgar was portrayed really well, so Yavier Xavier Bardem. Uh, portrays Stilgar, um, and like there's that great scene where he sort of strides into um, into Leto's council chamber and has has a little you know little chat with him, and then says, "Right, I've nothing more to say to you," and just walks off. You're like, "Grace, that is that is a Fremen, that is that's fantastic." But there's there's elements of them where I wish there'd been a bit more time put into like how important water is to the Fremen. You have one scene where Paul is speaking to a gardener in the um, in the palace grounds around the palm trees. It doesn't like it doesn't hammer home that like literally every drop of water is a valuable commodity on on Arrakis, um, and likewise, which is another thing that the dinner party scene does do quite well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like they really go. You're like, oh no, wow, 
everything is about like like all the power that people hold here is based on their control of water um which is why the fremen you know have such unknown power sort of thing you know because they've mastered the use of water um in terms of just going out into the desert for days on end and being completely self-sufficient um i think i think also there's so there's things where um like jamis's challenge of paul in the books very explicitly came from jamis's um arrogance and his bruised ego that paul had bested him and in this jamis says it's because jessica has beaten stillgar so now jessica must be challenged or it's like is jamis going for like leadership of the of the siege mm-hmm. is that's what's going on is that what's going on um and it was a bit less yeah. clear cut but then also in that fight scene in the book and you know the adaptations they strip down to their undies because they don't want to damage any of their equipment. You know, they've got these yeah, beautiful still, still suits. But the, the Fremen's wear these still suits, which are like preserve all your body's moisture, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a man will lose only a thimble full a day. Exactly. Fitted. Yeah, yeah, yes. As, as is the text, yeah. Um, the exact words of the text there, Scott. <laughs> but the, um, well, I did it. read it like today. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but this is it. And in, the, in, the, in this film, they just fight in the still suits, which... Mm. I don't know, maybe maybe that that's fine. But to me it felt like I don't think the Fremen would would, would voluntarily risk their equipment yeah. as well as their bodies. I, I do I do feel like the fight with Jamis as well. Like what was it quite it was necessary in the structure of the movie because they had to have some sort of culminating moment. Yes, agreed. But yeah. I, I think that is something that I think was a bit clumsy, is that this is an adaptation of like the first half of the book and it does feel incomplete. Like they, they kind of try and they have like a little plot arc of like you know Paul is foresees himself dying uh, yeah. in this duel with an unknown fremen who turns out to be Jamis, but you know it's it's kind of a case of like Paul Atreides must die so that the Quizzes Hadrat can live, and so he doesn't literally die, but by ki- by killing a man for the first time he spiritually dies, and I feel <laughs> yeah. like that that that's um it, it feels slightly like they were. They had to struggle to come up with a concrete character arc for Paul to go through in this movie alone. And I think, and this is me sort of trying to detach myself from being, you know, from knowing, you know, from already having read the book and understanding the story and things. I think, from a film perspective, it's probably narratively unsatisfying because you have that thing where Paul Paul has this big beef with the Harkonnens. They've killed his family. They've um taken away his you know everything that he has everything he ever knew has been taken away from him because of the harkonnens and the final fight of the movie is with with it's some guy, guy. <laughs> yeah just like <laughs> some dude who's a bit annoyed at you um and it like i think although we know it works in the grand narrative because we know that that's actually the beginning of paul's journey really like it's you know that's the start of his his journey with the fremen um I think in, the, in this film, I think if you weren't familiar with that, it would probably be a bit weird narratively. Yeah. It'd be like, well, that hasn't really got anything to do with any like Paul's it, emotional yeah, journey. Exactly. And, uh, and I do. That, this is where the movie kind of stumbled a bit for me. Is I think they, they walk a line between Dune, the political thriller about like the yes. big like feudal politics in this like space society, and Dune, the personal story of Paul Atreides. And in the book, the book's got time to twine, intertwine those two together. But I feel like we, for all Paul is like, is conflicted in in the film. They didn't quite externalize enough his conflict in the sense of like, there's not really any. Um, if we're thinking about like a hero's journey, there's no like refusal of a call. 
There, there's no yes. point where he really tries to like escape his destiny, which I think if you want to have that kind of character arc, you, you kind of need a bit. I think, yeah, I think just... I think, you, yeah, I think your observation is, is accurate there. I think the, to, to, like, get that satisfying feeling. Yeah, and it's. I think that's just a symptom of the fact that this is the first half of a story, which is in itself is is more like an introduction to a universe. And I think that's sort of a symptom of, you know, you've got to adapt all these different ideas in, which ones do you drop yeah. and things. And... I, I would have preferred if they were structurally a bit freer with it. Like if it, even like if they wanted to rearrange the order of scenes, or which they do a little bit, but also even like move scenes off to like the next movie. Like yeah, to, to focus in a bit more on Paul's personal journey. I, I think I think I agree. Yeah, yeah, and like I think having if this if this had been a movie solely about Paul, um, I would have been absolutely fine with that. Um, I mean, I think I think I would argue it still almost is because the, the action is very much focused around Paul, um, and you know, the, the what we do see of the Harkonnens is is only in as much as they they are going to affect Paul and his his journey itself. But yeah, I think it's sort of you, as you said, if you're going to do that, you need to make the story more satisfying from that character arc and that character perspective. Um, I think or, the film would would have ended like on a better note if it ended like as they escaped the Harkonnen attack. Yeah. like I think it, I think it would be more narrowly satisfying to have Paul kind of looking at the destruction for, like from a distance and being like, "I'm getting revenge." Well, that that scene is in the film as well because you see Jessica yeah. running out of the still tent and up onto the crest of the, of yeah. the dune, and I think yeah. well then you end up with a film where like you don't have any you, you end up with a Dune film with no Fremen. And yes, still God turns up for one scene, spits on the table and leaves, <laughs> eats, spits and leaves. Um, and you sort of go, oh, yeah, that would be weird. And I just, I, th- I mean, this is the thing of, of June. Being... This is the problem of trying to adapt June is the yeah. story is so, uh, yeah. so big and so um, un-Hollywood. And, I, th- and I, I think if you look at something like um, Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, has a similarly vast lore, possibly more so. You know, Lord of the Rings probably has more history than Dune does. If Dune has more sociology, I think, you know, Middle-earth has more history. Um, I think I'd be fair in saying that. But, like, Lord of the Rings is a story that you can condense into just focusing on those characters without diminishing the story overall. You know, so, Lord of the Rings has the advantage of starting small and then getting bigger as it goes along, whereas yes. Dune starts massive. And and just keeps stays nuts. Just just never scales back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has no sense of perspective whatsoever. Um, which, I mean, don't be wrong. I am thoroughly glad this film was made. I think it's a fantastic film. No matter what, I think just as a cinematic experience, it's 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 wonderful. You know, sort of just going in and having like just an amazing soundtrack. Both in terms of music, both in terms of sound effects. You know, things like that. Sound design, all the visuals and things. It is wonderful. But it does still have that element of, of you know, yeah, you, you didn't I, quite. I, I, I would be very interested to find out. Uh, again, you, you, you say your your partner's going to go and see it, so I'd be really interested to hear what her thoughts are on it. Uh, just yeah, as someone who's not read the book. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and I think the other thing with June is, you know, I mean, June has set so many tropes, and uh, well, as I've been rereading the book, um, having so basically since the last time I read June, which was about about twelve years ago now. Um, I've since read, you know, a lot of Game of Thrones and seen the whole series of Game of Thrones, and, and uh, you know, for better or worse, mm-hmm. um, 
And as I'm reading and- Dune now, I'm going, oh, oh, these these uh, Mentats, they're just maesters. Yeah, and, and also as I, like, Caitlin Stark's just Jessica. Yeah. Uh, she she just yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, she, she's just Jessica, Basically, you know. Uh, you have all this thing around. So like, much so that I would picture that actress in that role. Yeah, yes, exactly, yeah. Um, and you have, like, you know, Paul himself is essentially split into, like, John and Bran, you know, sort of, and a little bit of... Um, of Rob, uh, Rob Stark mm. as well, things like this, and you know you've got so you got yeah you've got the 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 Fremen. Joffrey is Fade Ralph. <laughs> yeah, Joffrey's Fade Ralph. You've got the Fremen does, who does effectively that, does that make Cersei the Baron Harkonnen? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think you've got Robert Baratheon as well, who's who does yeah. a very good visual representation of Baron Harkonnen. Um, but yeah, I guess you, Charles Dance. Um, I I called him by the actor's name first. <laughs> Tywin Lannister. Is he it? is Charles. Uh, of all the thing criticisms you can level at Game of Thrones for TV show, Charles Dance is just in my mind. Tywin Lannister forever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like you have Jamie Lannister, Cersei Lannister, and Charles Dance. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, you've got the you know, all these different things. Um, and the same with Star Wars. Like Star Wars is on a desert planet. It has the Sarlacc, which is basically just a static sandworm you know you've got all these different like you've got the force which is effectively the spice like like if you go through june and replace the word spice with the word force it 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 basically turns into star wars because it's just you know it gives you pressure it gives you pressure it allows you to live longer it gives you special abilities things like this um so i think june itself is in is is so influential in science fiction and fantasy and has now sort of has caused so many tropes that I wonder if like someone new to it watching it would be like that's a bit predictable that's a bit cliche like you know it's not it's not because it set the tropes yeah. like like the X-Files did with lots of television you know the X-Files yeah, set a lot of tropes but now when you watch it you feel like you've seen it before because you know it's, it's uh, I mean recreated June, so many times. June is predictable because all the characters know what's going to happen well you know, that's right yeah like yeah, yeah. I, I mean literally the, pro- the, the opening chapter of Dune is like the Reverend Mother's like yeah um, the Atreides are doomed uh, you can't yeah. you can't save the Duke so uh, good luck well, and uh paul if you get out of it i'll see you later yeah <laughs> good luck kid um yeah and i think like there's that again that works in the narrative for me because it gives that like elements of adds to the tragedy it also acts as a bit of a challenge so it's like you know oh yeah are they gonna make it is she right but yes you, you're like you know sort of no one ever seems particularly surprised by anything in june because surprise you know everything's already been planned within plans and all this kind of stuff and everyone's prescience anyway um but yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to see what what um, Katie. Uh, I'm really looking forward. Yeah, I I really like to see what they're going to do with Ilya. So again, if you've not read the books, uh, Jessica gives is pregnant when when Duke Leto dies. Jessica's pregnant with another child, a daughter, and Jessica, while still pregnant, drinks what's called the Water of Life, which is like mega spice concentrate mix, uh, and she um. Has like a, she basically becomes a reverend mother where she gets to access all her, all her maternal matrilineal like unconscious like genetic memories, but also her unborn child gets to do that as well. So when she gives birth to that child, like the newborn already has like the life experience and intelligence of like a thousand women, and also but. Uh, that, uh... Vladimir Harkonnen as well, it turns out. Yeah, like oh it. yes, as well. Because, Obviously, um, Jessica, yeah. Jessica, unbeknownst to her, is also the daughter of Vladimir Harkonnen. The, the Benny Gesserit just collects genetic material as well. Um, yes. You know. <laughs> Which, ick. 
Also, if you're if you are like a, a noble born man, your life's pretty good, except you must wank into a cup at some point <laughs> for for the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. But basically, so Ilya is like this infant, but she is like has like a super brain. Yeah, and she's she's seen everything. She knows everything, which again is also quite goofy. <laughs> but, well, but it's really good. It's goofy in the. I mean, everything in the Lynch film is goofy. I like. I like the Lynch film. I think visually and everything, it's it's great. But it, it it's goofy. It's goofy. And Al- Alia is. I mean, even again in the sci-fi adaptation, Alia is just a child being a bit creepy. And you're like, uh, it just seems a bit a bit cheesy. But it does sort of work in the book. And I don't know how but, they're going to do but it. Being, I, I like Alia's character though because, like, especially her resolution in Children of Dune, I think is quite good. But not to go yes. into that. But yeah, like yeah. being a like super like reverend mother as an infant she automatically assumes like a leading role in like paul's emerging like jihad and she becomes like a priestess basically yes all that and she she marries an adult man who's also a clone of sure i mean i guess that makes sense about as much as anything in dune messiah (laughs) (laughs) it was a different time it was a different time yeah i know it's well i think i mean that's also like a reference to child rides which was a you know in the god in the medieval times 12 i guess guess mentally she's not a child though yeah it's weird yeah Um, i mean (laughs) one of the things it's probably nicer not to think about too much i think yes yeah don't give it too much form. Another reason why they'll never make an adaptation of Dune Messiah, but yeah, this, uh, but but I like Ilya's character, especially in the first book, where she is like a creepy but like super intelligent child, and also she like she's Saint Ilya of a knife because she goes around the battlefield like killing injured Harkonnen. Yes, of course, yeah, <laughs> which uh, so, like just horrible, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, uh, I'm I'm. I would say the film, I liked it. it. I'm optimistic for the next one. I, um, Although I found the ending a bit unsatisfying, I really liked what they did with the visuals. Uh, yeah. I, we didn't... I also... That, that spaceship was just like a sphere that, that touched down on Caladan. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked the whole scene they added where like the Herald of the Emperor like officially tells the Duke... <laughs> To go and uh, take over Arrakis. That's well, a good scene. That's a really good adaptational scene because, like, it it reinforces the, as you said, like the feudal aspects and you know everything's formal, everything's um, you know very like structured and rigid, and you know, um, and also that scene gives justification for Reverend Mother um, Gaius Mahayim, Helena Gaius Mahayim. Is that it? Ga- Gaius Helen Mahayim. Gaius Helen Mahayan, beg your pardon. Um, in, in the book, she turns up at the beginning and she stops by for like half an hour to to torture Paul and shout at Jessica and then leave. And they later on make it clear exactly how expensive and inconvenient space travel is between worlds. And uh, obviously, it's, then it's, sort of, it's, it's a bit weird that she just turned up to be like, oh, hey, I'm just going to stop by to shout at you and then leave. And so I like that this this new scene in the film adds in a, a justification for that like she obviously went along with the imperial party and so she has a reason to be there already sort of thing which i think was sensible uh, i, I also topic, like topic. it because it reinforces the fact that like leto can't you you can't just say no when the emperor asks you to take over this fiefdom yes like, no, exactly you, no you, you do have to say yes it is a formality yeah, yeah. It's like you've been given, you've been asked politely, very, very, very politely by the emperor himself. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to turn the bug off. 
Probably should have done. Yeah, absolutely no Princess Irulan, who in the book does not turn up until the end, but she has uh, quotations from her like before every chapter. Well, yeah, she's weirdly central and yet also uh, invisible. <laughs> I mean, but that is also her role in subsequent books because basically at the end. Paul like rides in with his Fremen, basically defeats the Emperor, and is like, "I'm going to marry your daughter, but I'm not going to love her. Yeah, <laughs> She's just going to be my trophy wife, basically. She is um, going to be miserable. We're both going to be miserable. Nobody's going to like this. So, but it might make Irulan, things better. <laughs> yeah. So, the Princess Irulan apparently just devoted her time to writing and editing a bunch of books about Paul that she <laughs> we have quotes from before every chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which I don't know. Maybe that's just how she she dealt with things. Yeah. It is. I, I think she just fall in love do. with him, doesn't she? Later on, but I don't think he ever. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, just just what a narrative. Not a bad deal in life. I know. Well, I mean, she was the daughter of an emperor. She probably didn't. She the probably daughter didn't want of a Carino. Yeah, daughter of a Carino, and then and then wife of the the new emperor. Um, she was probably doing okay for herself, but yeah, not not where you'd want to be necessarily. But this is yeah, it. I think. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. No, you go ahead. No, you, oh, no. I was, I was going to wrap up, but you go, go ahead. Well, no, I think I, I, think, I, think, I think I basically was as well. As you say, like I think it's a really good. I think it's a really good adaptation. There's stuff in there that I, I miss because I love this, but I, I fully understand why it couldn't be in there. Um, you know, lots of little scenes and things which just, just slow the narrative down and ultimately don't, don't go anywhere within the plot itself, which is focused on Paul. Um, so and and then just as you said, like I mean, just it's masterfully crafted this film, and like every detail, every little. Um, I mean, I saw a close-up image of one of the hovering lights. So as as Paul walks around on glow Canada, globes, the yeah, yeah the glow globes sort of <laughs> following around. But I saw a close-up image of one on um, on YouTube, and like it's got this beautiful inlay which you don't even see in the films. It's always dark, but it's got this like like hand-carved like weaving Celtic knotwork inlay. Um, within the globe itself just stunning craftsmanship um all around so i think it's an excellent film and a, pr- a pretty good adaptation and yeah 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 I, I, like i said i think the mark of a good adaptation is it made me want to reread the source material which um, exactly it, it kept that love for it and yeah yeah it inspired, it inspired that in me again so that yeah uh, I I would recommend it. I would say I, it's enjoyable um, with the caveat that if you've not had anything to do with Dune before, I mean, you've heard us talk for like an hour and a bit about it. Yeah. But I don't I don't know what you'll, uh, if, if it will be a bit much. Well, also, I think the book's been around for six decades at this point. Yeah. So, you know, you True. probably... I, I would say watch it and then hopefully uh, it will make you feel inspired to read the book as well. Because yes. Because deserve reading. Yes, they do. Yeah, they're really good. Cool. Well, thank you, John, very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you very much, Scott. I've had a great time, once again. And not as hungover as last time, which has been nice as well. (laughs) I'm not fighting my own body to try and keep going. Uh, Hopefully we can come and talk about more science fiction stuff. I would love to. In the future. That would be great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.